0: It's good to be back. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to be reading starting at verse 1, reading down through verse 11. The sermon text is actually verses 3 through 11. Hear now this reading from God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. And again I'll be reading and preaching from the New King James. Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, And entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks that you have given to us your holy word written down for us. We are thankful for this treasure. We are thankful that you give us the privilege of knowing you and your son through the reading of your holy word and also by the hearing of it proclaimed. We ask, Father, that you would abundantly bless the proclamation of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would give us a true sermon that we would not merely hear a lecture, but we would hear your word proclaimed by the power of the Holy Spirit. But also, Lord, we pray that as your word is proclaimed in the power of the Spirit, that the Spirit would work powerfully in all those who hear it, including this preacher. We ask, Father, that you would do this. Because we have already confessed that we are sinners. We acknowledge this. And because we have acknowledged this, we come to you knowing that we are sinners who need to be changed. Oh, Father, we need more than just information, although we need that. We need transformation. And we ask that you would abundantly bless the preaching of your word to that end. May this be a time of your power. And may we leave this place with a greater rejoicing in our hearts than we entered with. Because you had so abundantly blessed our worship and the proclamation of your holy word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The recurring theme in Second Peter is the knowledge of Christ. It actually, that concept occurs five times throughout this book. Peter begins with the need for the knowledge of Christ in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Next, he gives us the sources for the knowledge of Christ, chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. In chapter 3, he gives us the danger of apostasy from the knowledge of Christ. And then in chapter 3. He gives us an example of the application of the knowledge of Christ. The book ends with these words, chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's intention is to encourage his readers to practice godly living. He raises that point. In chapter 3, verses 11 and 14, but there was also a need for him to encourage them to remain steadfast in the faith. You find that in chapter 3, in verse 17. The easiest way to understand Peter's intention, his purpose in writing this book, is actually to begin at the end. I know this sounds strange, but to begin at the end and work Forward, As I already pointed out, the readers were in danger of wavering in the faith, chapter 3, verse 17, but also living ungodly lives, chapter 3, verses 11 and 14. And why were these difficulties? Why were they struggling? Well, it's because of doubts regarding the second coming. That's, you find that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. You know, there's those things. Where's the promise of his coming? In First John chapter 3 and verse 3, we can see this connection between living, godly, and the hope of the second coming. This is what the apostle John wrote. And everyone who has this hope in him, that's in Christ, purifies himself Just as he is pure. There he's talking about the hope of the second coming. And if you have that hope, your desire will be to be pure, to be purified, just as your Savior is pure. Now the reason for these doubts about the second coming is because of these false teachers. And Peter deals with them specifically in chapter 2. So, we find here that the answer to the heresies of these false teachers is the knowledge of Christ. What does that mean? If you think about it, Peter begins chapter 1 with the answer and then works toward the problems. He starts with the answer and works toward the problems problems. What were the problems? The tendency toward ungodly living and also the tendency to waver in the faith. His last command that we find in chapter 3 in verse 18 establishes that growing in grace is to be linked to the answer. Growing in grace is linked to growing in the knowledge of Christ. If you think about it, wouldn't you say that the answer, or at least part of the answer to all of your spiritual problems is knowing Jesus? Think that one through. Think that one through. In 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 11 Christ through his servant Peter presents his provision for your spiritual growth in verses 3 and 4 and then his plan for your growth in grace in verses 5 through 7 and then thirdly Christ presents the purposes for your growth in grace in verses 8 through 11. Look again at what Peter tells us about your provision for growth in grace. Listen to, we're just going to start at verse 3 here. As his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue we understand that the provision that peter is speaking about is the provision that we need to live godly lives when he says here That it's his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I agree with those who combine the concept of life and godliness to mean everything that pertains to godly living. Everything that you need to live a godly Christian life has been provided for you. Do you believe that? And it's given to you through Christ's divine power. Power. Think about that. Christ's divine power has given you everything you need to live a godly life. We heard in Sunday school today. Jesus is God. Don't have to prove that to this congregation. I could say more. I have more in my notes. But what I want you to realize that he does say this provision not only comes by Christ's divine power, it consists of everything, all things that pertain to godly living. And I take that expression, all things refer, pertaining to life and godliness, to be both comprehensive and exhaustive. Now remember, Paul, I mean, Peter here is dealing with their tendency to live ungodly. And so this is how he begins. It's rather interesting, the word here that's translated has given is a word that was used to express overwhelming generosity. These blessings... These provisions, understand, they come to you. They belong to you. They are yours. Because they were purchased for you by the very blood of the Lord Jesus. Also, his provision is appropriated by your knowledge of him. And what he means by this is by you knowing Christ. The more you know Christ, and we'll see this as we move through this text, the more you know Christ, the more then you are able to appropriate, to make use of that provision that Christ has given you to live godly. But also notice that his provision is the result of his calling you. He says here, let me just read it again, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Now, if you have the ESV in front of you, I know how it reads. To his own glory and virtue. And that's a legitimate, legitimate way of translating it. That's perfectly legitimate. The authorized version does have to glory and virtue. I agree with the New King James. It should be translated by glory and virtue. I think it fits the context much better. Let me just say this. One of the reasons why I've reached that conclusion, because I believe Peter is pointing us to the fact that Christ did not save us primarily because of who or what we are, but because of who and what he is. He called us by his glory and his future. Is it true that he called us to his glory and virtue? Yeah, in a very real sense, that's true. But is it also true that he called us by his glory and virtue? You see, the glory refer, refers to what we might call his natural attributes. The fact that he is omnipresent, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's everywhere, he's all-powerful, he is all-knowing. Virtue refers to his moral attributes, the fact that he is loving, that he's merciful, that he's holy, that he is righteous. Notice back in verse 2, actually verse 1, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's an interesting grammatical rule that's in effect there in verse 2. Excuse me, verse 1. Which means that our God and our Savior are one in the same person. That's what that grammar is telling us. And so that tells us, yes, that he's God. But it's also by his righteousness that we have obtained that like precious faith. Romans chapter 3. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. You see, God could not merely pardon us. He had to have his righteousness satisfied. And he devised a way to save his people so that he could be understood to be both just and the justifier. Because his justice was met through the death of his son. But notice also that his glory and virtue have given you promises by which you were made a partaker of the divine nature. At the beginning of verse 4, that phrase, by which, the which there is plural in the Greek. It means by which things. Well, what would that refer to? That refers to his glory and his virtue. Now the repetition of the preposition through in verses 3 through 4 does show the connections of what Peter is getting at. All things were given you all things were given to you through the knowledge of Christ who called you he called you through his glory and virtue through his glory and virtue you were given Promises, and through these promises, you are made a partaker of the divine nature. And a result of becoming a partaker of the divine nature, you escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. (coughs) These promises, which he describes as exceeding great and precious, and indeed they are, that's because these promises refer to your salvation. Second Corinthians chapter one and verse twenty, we recognize that these promises come to us through Christ. This is what Paul wrote in Second Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty. For all the promises of God in him, him being Christ, are yes. And in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. So all of these promises involving our salvation in Christ are yes. They're yes. All these promises, as I said, involve your salvation. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15, and also in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 25, we read of the promise of eternal life. In Acts chapter 2, verses, verse 33, we read of the promise of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 26, verses 6 through 8, we read of the promise of the resurrection, which is our final partaking of the divine nature. I was flipping through channels one time, and I ran across the one of the local religious broadcasts. And this is Ken Copeland's pro- program. Now, I do not usually watch Ken Copeland. He had Creflo Dollar on his program. And Creflo said that based on Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, that because Christ did not consider robbery to be equal with God, and because God, Christ is our example, then we should, like Christ, affirm our own deity. That's the correct. Yeah. And to Ken Copeland's credit, he recognized that that was heretical, or at least serious error. Okay, um, I think maybe it maybe is was heretical. But anyway, Ken tried to persuade him that that was wrong. Yes, you and I are partakers of the divine nature. To the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But understand this partaking of the divine nature no more makes you a God than eating bread makes you a loaf. And then, as he goes on, notice it is through these promises. He says that through these, that's the promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. Then he adds, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. One who has partaken of the divine nature, one who has been regenerated, one in whom the Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells, is one who has escaped the corruption that is in the world through Through lust. Now remember, at this point, Peter is dealing with this tendency of these believers to live ungodly because of doubts about the second coming. But he moves on. We've just looked at Christ's provision for your spiritual growth, starting at verse 5. We look at Christ's plan for your growth in grace. Notice how it reads. But also for this very reason. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. The virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, (coughs) and to brotherly kindness Love. First of all, Christ wants you to understand the implication of the vastness of His provision for your growth in grace. He wants you to understand that He desires for you to match the abundance of His provision for you. With your diligence in appropriating that provision. Verses 3 and 4, where Christ presents his provision for your growth in grace, starting with verse 15, I mean verse 5, excuse me. We have here. The reason, or you could say the motivation for obeying Christ's commands in what follows. Uh, I actually prefer the way the ESV does it. They just simply say, for this very reason. The point is, that makes a more direct connection with verses 3 and 4. So you are to be diligent in the pursuit of your spiritual Growth. Now, if you're paying attention, you realize it's quite the responsibility, isn't it? Giving all diligence? Who's exercising the diligence? You and me. I want you to understand something. We do not sanctify ourselves, we do not do that. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Now, the two operative words after that are renewed and enabled. Does that mean we have no responsibility in our sanctification? We do. I like the way Sinclair Ferguson put it. He points out that a sailing vessel is not driven forward by... The sails. It's the wind that drives the ship forward, just as the Holy Spirit drives us forward in our progress of our growth in grace. But somebody has to hoist the sails. We have something we call the means of grace. The means of grace. Now, we don't sanctify ourselves, but we do have our responsibility in it. We host the sales by making good use of the available means of grace that God has given to us. But as we see in this text, we grow in grace by appropriating this Christ divine provision by growing in our knowledge of him. So, yes, you are to take all that Christ has provided you and to diligently supply that to your life. Notice how he begins then after this add to your faith virtue. We do understand that faith is a gift. Sometimes, uh, when I was the pastor of the OPC church uh, in, in, in Green, the Greenville area, you know, I'd have to deal with certain egghead Calvinists, seminarians. After one of the worship services, a seminarian came up to me. I don't like this hymn. My faith looks up to thee. It's not our faith. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit. I said to him, that's true. Faith is a gift that's given to us by the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit didn't believe for you. You're the one who believed. I think that settled the question in his mind. Maybe it was okay to submit him. I think it's okay. You f- I hope you get my point there. Holy Spirit did not believe for you. But yes, it is a gift. And that's part of the provision of what Christ has given you. But as we understand, particularly from the book of James, faith is not to stand alone. So he says, "To we are to add to our faith virtue. <laughs> that word means moral excellence. But wait a minute, If you, how do you determine what is morally excellent and what is not? How do you determine that? Well, you have to add knowledge to your virtue. That knowledge would point us to the scriptures. We do not know right from wrong apart from what the scriptures teach us is what's right and wrong. We would also understand that Peter is pointing us to the knowledge of Christ. That's the focus of the entire book. Is as we know Christ, as we understand how he is our example of right and wrong, we understand why we need to study the scriptures and see Christ in the scriptures. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll add this. One of the things I teach in one of my classes... Is And it's how to move from the Greek text to the sermon in the Gospels. I tell my students, when you preach from the Gospels, you've got to ask yourself this question. What does this passage teach me about Jesus? That's what these Gospels are about. It's not about people who came in contact with Jesus. But it's about Jesus. And so one of my former students... Preach from Luke about Gabriel's announcement to Mary that she was going to give birth to the Messiah. And rather than the sermon being about the supernatural conception of our Savior, it was about how we should respond to God like Mary did. Boy, my heart sank. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that we should respond to God like Mary did? Absolutely. But that's not what the text is about. The text is about supernatural conception of our blessed Redeemer. When you study the scriptures, though, you should be looking for how the scriptures point us to Christ himself. And I'm talking about all the way back from Genesis right on to Revelation. But here's the thing. Once we have this knowledge and we know right from wrong, all of a sudden we realize what? Oh, there's things that I'm doing I shouldn't be doing. And there are things I'm not doing that I should be doing. So what do we need next? Self-control. And by the way, the same word here that's translated self-control is listed among the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Well, but how long is our self-control going to last? Well, look at the next point. Perseverance. It says steadfastness in the ESV, and that's a good translation of that word. The word here that's translated perseverance or steadfastness refers to the ability to endure difficulties. And I believe that in this context, it primarily is referring to the difficulty of facing temptations. Remember, they were in danger of living ungodly. But what's the motivation for our perseverance? It's the next item, godliness. This word here that's translated godly, godliness refers, first of all, to reverence for God, but also the resulting godly conduct. I like the way John Lilly put it. He wrote an excellent commentary um, on Second Peter. He wrote this Let the thought of God, a religious sense, holy reverence, and a childlike trust in him be the life and strength of patience. Now he's that's the old King James word. Patience. He he could have have just, as easily written, be the strength, the life and strength of endurance or steadfastness. See, one of the things that you and I need to be aware of and probably constantly remind ourselves is that God is aware of everything we think, everything we do, everything we say. Now, let's suppose you're driving down the road, and all of a sudden you look in your rearview mirror, and you see there's a car following you with a, a set of blue lights, a rack of blue lights. Now, what's going to be your impulse to press down on the accelerator and get out of there as quick as you can? I don't think so. Probably the first thing you're going to do is take your foot off the gas, right? And look down at the speedometer and hope, oh, I hope I wasn't speeding. Now, how are you going to drive with that police officer following you? Are you going to drive carelessly or are you going to drive very, very carefully? Carelessly or carefully. carefully? And so you make a right-hand turn and, you, uh-oh, the officer has followed you. Oh, no, is he going to hit the blue lights for some reason? You go a little further and you make a left-hand turn and you go, okay, he's going straight. But my point is this if that's how we're going to drive when a police officer is following us, how much more should we drive or live our lives carefully before God who is always watching us? But one of the ways in which godliness manifests itself is how we treat one another as God's people. And so that's why he adds, I'm convinced he adds to this, the need for love for one another. You may recall that Paul was on the road to Damascus. I think we talked about that today. Sunday When Paul was on the road to Damascus and the Lord, the resurrected Lord, appeared to him. He didn't say to Paul, why are you persecuting my people? That's what he was doing. No, he said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus took that as a personal offense, and rightly so. We should understand that everything that we do to a fellow brother and sister in Christ, Christ takes that personally. If you do good to that brother and sister, he's pleased with that. If you do a brother and sister in Christ dirty, Mm -hmm. the Lord's not pleased with that. But it doesn't stop it at brotherly kindness. He says that we are to add to our brotherly kindness love. This is the same word that Paul treats in 1 Corinthians 13. And yes, this also is listed among the fruit of the Spirit. But Paul now, or Peter now moves on to Christ's purposes... For your growth in grace. This is verses 10 and 11. (coughs) Notice. Oh wait. I left some things out. I can't believe this. Um, Notice verse 8. For if these things are yours. And abound. You shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge. Here it is again. You shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, Christ's purpose for your growth in grace, one of those purposes is, he does not want you to be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of himself. In other words, he doesn't want you to be useless and fruitless. This is an amazing text because what we find here is that Peter has actually brought us back to where he started. You see, through the knowledge of Christ, you appropriate all things pertaining to life and godliness. And if you continually add these things to your life, you will grow in your knowledge of him. And so the point here is, as you grow, the more you know Christ, the more you become like him. And the more you become like him, the more you know him. In other words, your knowledge of Christ advances your growth and your growth advances your knowledge of him. Are you getting this? As you grow from knowing Christ, the more you become like him. And the more you become like him, the more you grow in grace. You hear of sometimes people talk about a vicious cycle. This isn't a vicious cycle. This is a glorious cycle. You remember what the Lord said in John 17 and verse three? He's praying what was sometimes called his high priestly prayer. He defined eternal life in this way, and this is eternal life: that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's it. Striking definition of eternal life, knowing the Father and the Son. But also understand as we move on in this text that Christ intends for you to have clear vision. Notice the first part of verse 9 For he who lacks these things is short sighted even to blindness. And has forgotten that he was cleansed of his old sins. Short-sightedness is what the apostle is pointing us to. That's what the blindness consists of. Being short-sighted. See, those who are short-sighted are those who see only their present life they cannot see the invisible, eternal, and glorious things of God in Christ. And so Paul writes in Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18, We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. One of my favorite movies is entitled Apartment for Peggy. I know I'm dating myself. That's an old, old one. Um, Peggy is played by Jean Crane. Her husband, Jason, is played by William Holden. And basically it's called Apartment for Peggy because her husband on the GI Bill has gone to college. And Peggy is able to convince an elderly professor to use his addict as an apartment. So here they are. The three of them are up in the apartment and they're discussing personal finances. And Peggy says to her husband, give me a half dollar. So he reaches in a pocket, give, gives her a half dollar and she holds that half dollar in front of his right eye and tells him to close his left eye and he asks, she asks him, what do you see? He says, I see my, my half dollar. And then she moves back several feet. And she asks, what do you see now? He says, my half dollar. And then she asks, no, what else do you see? He says, well, I see you. I see the professor. I see the bookshelf with the bookshelves on. He says, here's the point don't hold your money so close you can't see anything else. Don't hold anything so close that you cannot see anything else, particularly that which is invisible, that which is glorious, that which is eternal. That's why we need a clear vision. And Christ intends to you to have a clear vision as you grow in grace but he also intends for you to be mindful of the atonement notice how verse 9 ends and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins it's quite clear that if these items that paul and that peter mentions here are not yours and abound in you. Not only will you be barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ, there will be a short-sightedness and the result you will have forgotten the sacrifice of your dear Savior. But Notice how he moves on. Verse 10. Therefore, therefore, this is a very strong conjunction. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. You and I are to make our call and election sure. You might be thinking, wait a minute, what about the sermon you preached last Sunday? What about the security of God's elect? No, I firmly believe that. But Paul, Peter does not say here, make your calling and election secure. If you're in Christ, you're as secure as you can possibly be. No, what he means by this, making your call and election sure. Is to make sure you actually do belong to Christ. Everything that he said in this text. Up to this point. Is driving to this point. That's why he uses that strong conjunction. Therefore. And notice he says back in verse. Back in verse 5. For this reason giving all diligence. He now says therefore be even more diligent. You know, we talk about the perseverance of the saints. When I was raised as a Baptist, we called it once saved, always saved. Not a very good way of putting it. I do believe in once saved, always saved. Okay, I do believe that. But I'd rather call it the perseverance of the saints. And why? Because it implies diligence. It implies effort. To make our calling and election sure. Again, this is where we see that Peter has now shifted his focus. To those who had that tendency to waver in the faith. It's mindful for us to recognize the danger of thinking we're saved when we may not actually be. In fact, I believe, last Lord's Day, a Sunday school teacher pointed out that in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, the Lord said, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven, and many shall say to me in that day, Did we not do all this? he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Make your call and election sure. But notice also, one of Christ's purposes regarding your growth in grace is he intends for you to gain an abundant entrance into his eternal kingdom. He adds... First of all, he does add, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. That's emphatic language in the Greek. It means you will absolutely in no wise stumble. Then he goes on, he says, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This abundant entrance is referring to the rewards that God's people receive when they either, well, when the, when the rewards are handed out. Understand this. Yes, we receive rewards from Christ, but do not think it's because you earned them. You didn't earn them. When God says, Christ says, <coughs> I will reward you for doing something, he's simply fulfilling a promise. It doesn't mean you in any way earned that reward. But notice, notice. Back in chapter, yeah, back in verse 9, he talked about being short-sighted. Now he brings in, he points to the future in contrast to being short-sighted. Now, let's suppose that there's a man who's convicted of writing bad checks. And after he got out of prison, no one would hire him because, well, now he's an ex con so he ends up living the life of a bum. But one day, an extremely wealthy man took pity on this man. So he feels sorry for him. So he deposits a million dollars in a checking account for him and has a checkbook delivered to this man. With the explanation that a million dollars has been deposited in an account. In your name, here's the checkbook. And of course, at first, the man's thrilled. He's excited. But then he begins to think that maybe this is just somebody's idea of a cruel joke. After all, he thinks, I've made a lot of people upset at me by writing all those bad checks. I went to jail for writing all those bad checks. And so he decides not to write any checks and continues to live the life of a bum, even though he's a millionaire. What I want to know is, are you really any different? You have available to you all things pertaining to life and godliness But are you living like a bum because you are not appropriating that provision through knowing Christ, growing in your knowledge of Christ as you would then grow in grace? Again, it all begins with knowing Christ. And again, at the close of the epistle, Peter wrote this, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through the knowledge of Christ that you can fully appropriate Christ's provision. The provision by which you grow in grace. And may the Lord, by his grace, enable you to grow in grace as you grow in your knowledge of Christ as you study the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful text. We're thankful for how it does point us to Christ and so many great truths in connection with our growth in grace. Father, we pray that you would enable us to not only remember these things, but to apply these things. May we earnestly, earnestly seek to grow in grace by your grace. And we ask this.